Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we are very privileged to have with us Dr. Marlene Wasserman, who is founder of the Dr. Eve Brand, who's a clinical sexologist and a trauma intimacy counselor, and we are so privileged to have you on the show today. And I think it's the first time on Disco Medical Monday, well, at least since I've been the host, that we've had uh, someone of uh, your caliber and knowledge in, in your discipline. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Dean. It's always nice to be back working with KFM. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So can you just, if our listeners, I'm sure most of them have heard of you or know about you, but for newer listeners or younger listeners or people who've been hiding in the basement for the past 30 years, <laughs> Can you tell us exactly who who you are and what you do? All right. So I started out my career as a um, clinical social worker, and then I got a master's in family therapy. And uh, once I was doing family therapy, I became very aware of the fact that couples were really the problem, even though children were symptomizing. And I then shifted over into doing couple work. And once I started doing couple work, couples started talking to me about their sexuality. And it was at that time, just before 94, in the early 90s, where there wasn't any training in this country, there unfortunately still isn't, in couple therapy, sex therapy. And so in 94, I had the opportunity to start certifying as a couple and sex therapist. And that took me about two and a half years. I did that in, uh, in America, mostly on the West Coast and became certified with the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists, of which I am still very deeply involved. And then I did my doctorate in San Francisco in human sexuality. And my career over the 27 years have um, has spanned following almost a trajectory of sexual medicine in the world because I just had the, was at the right place at the right time. So, for example, um, Viagra was launched in 1999, and um, it was at that time that I was uh, started on the radio because my first radio gig was on Capital Radio 94, and I kind of had a voice because in that time, South Africa began to realize that we have a really huge HIV-AIDS problem, and people needed education. And then it became known that we have a really huge gender-based violence problem, and people needed education. And then sexual medicine was born after, you know, a whole lot of research as a result of Viagra. And so there was a huge interest in sexual medicine and, um, for example, erectile dysfunction as a disease and not just something that men struggled with. So my career has kind of followed that trajectory um, of what sexuality has been for the last 27 years, moving from um, just the clinical side into sexual medicine, and then um, I found that sexual medicine was was just becoming way too pathologized. Sexuality was becoming way too pathologized, and sexual medicine just seemed to me too medicalized, um, whilst ignoring contextual and cultural and individual issues. And so I moved away from sexual medicine per se. And um, yeah, my career then took an interesting turn into the online world because I was really fascinated with 
technology, what people's uh, relationships and sexuality were like online. And I then began to do research into cyber infidelity and wrote a book about that. And um, from there, I expanded into looking at different kinds of relationship structures and landed me where I am now, Dean, which is um, certifying, which I will be in a few weeks' time, as a trauma practitioner to be able to work with the trauma of people's intimacy in their intimate lives. So that's kind of a rough idea of my tools in my toolbox, as I put it, being able to have um, interventions for my clinical practice. So that's just my clinical practice. I have many other areas in which I've been very present. Um, should I just keep talking? Because I can just keep talking. <laughs> carry on, Karen, I'll interrupt you. I'll interrupt you in it. So I started my uh, radio career, as I say, in, in 94 and have been you know, really privileged to still today be a contributor on radio. Um, and it was amazing. I was on Radio Metro for seven years, on East Coast Radio for about 10 years, and I've done every radio station in this country. And more recently on 702, Cape Talk and 702, and... Um, uh, raised issues, you know, was able to really do what I'm very passionate about, which is education, bringing sexuality. You've been, you've been pretty uh, groundbreaking in your field, and especially in South Africa, I can imagine. Yeah, I have pioneered very much, and not only in South Africa. I really positioned myself internationally as well because of my international training, which was ongoing and is ongoing. So I became very involved in international societies, reaching board level, of um, different organizations, and um, now currently I am on the local scientific chair for the World Association of Sexual Health. Uh, we are the global umbrella body for all sexual health organizations um, in the world, and we are having, for the first time ever, the Congress in South Africa in September 2021 in Cape Town. Probably be a hybrid, obviously now because of COVID. Yeah, so I'm hoping that everybody will be able to come. Or, I mean, it's been amazing yeah. that we've had so many conferences now online. Yeah, you should, yeah. You should be able to attract more international guests and speakers and listeners. Exactly, exactly. So we're busy preparing that, and because I'm the local scientific chair, I'm deeply involved and very committed to that process. So that's you know very privileging as well. And then also I'm a temporary advisor to the WHO, and uh, that's been a hugely privileged and very, very um, exciting process to be part of that, uh, because for many years um, I have and continue to be a lecturer in sexual medicine at the University of Cape Town, and my work with WHO has been focused on educating doctors on the importance of sexual health. So that was the, uh, the the publication that we've put out and we're still working on that, is to be able to teach doctors how to communicate very briefly and integrate sexual history taking into their assessment of, um, of, of all their patients, really focusing on the importance of sexual health and more recently the importance of sexual pleasure as well. Um, and then in terms of my education career, my, my career as an education, sexuality education educator, I've been um, very involved in, in school education. I wrote a book called Dr. Eve's Sex Book, which was a textbook in this country in all schools. And then more recently, I was the consultant for the 2020 um, school education, the curriculum for national curriculum on uh, on life orientation, the sexuality thread, 
of 2020 learners for the next um, 10 years, so I contributed you know, a lot to that part of it. So that's been a huge part of my work is the education. And then I run another practice besides my private practice as a clinician, which is my main passion, and I'll come back to that. Um, what I've been doing as well for a number of years and became very involved in with, is um, medical legal work. So I'm one of the only uh, experts in sexual health globally. There are very few of us who are doing this work. And once again, I kind of pioneer the idea to the legal fraternity of the importance of compensation for loss of sexual health and the implications of that in people's lives who've suffered from medical negligence or personal injury. So I have quite a thriving practice, which is very um, stimulating and, and, and really very exciting, very important part of my work is my medical legal work as well. Um, because I think you can hear, you know, I've always been a human defender and an activist. Yeah, sure. Human rights. So, yeah, so, okay, so uh, let's talk maybe a little bit about your private practice and what you see on a daily basis. I imagine from 94 people, when you, you were still new, people found it difficult or there was a bit of a taboo that uh, talking about sexual health and one's sexual health and about their partners. How did you break through those uh, those boundaries or the stigma of uh, talking about uh, your sexual health or sexual practice? I think it became, um, it became clearer on radio that I was able to, to do that because we live in a in a very multicultural country and patriarchal country. And I think that people eventually, eventually began to listen to what I was saying and took the education because it was needed. So 27 years ago, um, there was a huge kickback. There was a huge amount of resistance from people, from many people around this is, this is culturally inappropriate, this is religiously inappropriate. I mean, I can tell you a story, and I found it quite uh, paradoxical that just this last week I was nominated as a finalist for the Jewish Report Award, which was, you know, fabulous to receive. But, you know, a number of years ago, I was visited by the Rabbonim, who told me to stop talking about sexuality, to stop writing about it, because I was bringing shame to the community. And I had many, obviously, Christian bodies and Muslim bodies also really resisting and threatening me. And I persevered because I totally believe that everybody has a right to education and information about their sexuality and about their right to pleasure and their wow. right to information. So, yeah, I have had many slings and arrows. And, um, but that's I, just made you stronger and probably more popular and more determined to do what you do. Yeah, I have enormous passion for it, Dean. I have enormous passion for people's rights. That's really what drives me. I, I'm an activist. I believe in people's rights. I um, I have most recently, with my new work in trauma, I've created a new hashtag called Intimacy Injustice, and I feel very strongly around any injustice, any injustice against women, against people of different religions, against uh, different cultures and different races. And so the same is with, with gender and with sexuality. Uh, you know, we'll not tolerate injustice. And the only way right. that we... Can, 
Can, sorry to interrupt you. I just think we need to take a short ad break. Of course. Of and course. Uh, I want, we'll talk uh, a bit more after this. We'll be back in a minute. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. Eve, a clinical sexologist. And we've just been talking about her life and the beginnings and uh, the process of her career. And we just now touched on your uh, trauma therapy, or how how would you put it, your trauma in, in sexual Social injustice, yeah, intimacy trauma. Okay, so, so do you want to tell us a bit more about intimacy trauma and uh, how you got into it and what you deal with uh, when you see clients with intimacy trauma? Right, I'm, I'm going to loop back because I think it'll be interesting for people to see also how how sexuality has changed in this country and certainly in the world, but certainly in my own private practice and my work on on radio and television, is that right in the beginning, because we'd come out of apartheid and censorship, there was just basic 101 information that people were longing for. You know, people wanted to hear about sexual dysfunction and sexual functioning and what was normal, what is normal. And the conversations were about masturbation and how do I have orgasms and I have erectile dysfunction or how do I delay my orgasm? And it was a whole lot of focus on basic stuff like that. And then over the years, you know, it began to change. I mean, there was oh, so much ignorance around, um, you know, am I a virgin and how do I menstruate? I mean, just basic stuff that people were suffering, suffering. And that's what I mostly saw was that how people suffered in their relationship, in their bodies, in the intimacy, because they didn't have this basic information that everybody has a right to. And obviously, over the years, it became um, less interesting for me to keep talking about that, and then much more interesting for me to talk about the complexity of relationships. And that evolved because one can't have healthy, satisfying, pleasurable sexual functioning unless you're in healthy relationships, right? So my focus really was on the complexity of relationships, and so... My clinical practice reflected that, and obviously I brought those topics to the radio for people to really think about diversity of sexuality and to think about gender-based violence and to think about cancer and illness and how those things affected your sexuality and your relationship. There's a lot of work around cancer. Um, I was very involved with what's called Oncosexology internationally as well. Um, so that was part of that part of my career. And then... Um, once I started doing the research on technology, and this was in 2013, and then uh, brought out my book on cyber infidelity in 2015, the work began to change where couples just started coming in around their infidelity, specifically cyber infidelity. And I uh, saw a very unique kind of pain that they Can you just tell us about cyber infidelity? Just to yeah, yeah, what sure, it is. Sure. Sure. So cyber infidelity, the, the definition of that would be um, two people who are in monogamous, committed relationship who then enter into online experiences, connections, attachments, relationships, sexting with other people or an other person and get either emotionally attached or sexually attached or just engaging with this person. And keep it secret from a partner. And then the partner finds out, and they always do, because that's what happens when you have a mobile phone. It's not really private. When that 
gets found out, the partner is completely devastated at that uh, discovery. And the trauma that results from that is, is quite a unique trauma. So um, people, once they began to realize that they were interacting and engaging with their mobile devices very differently, that there was more opportunity for other parts of themselves, for parts that they never anticipated or didn't plan. In other words, people didn't get online to have an affair or to cheat, but found that they would be caught up in a Twitter conversation or an Instagram crush, and they would feel really happy and feel alive and feel happier in their marriages. And these were people who were saying, I I don't want to get divorced. I'm not doing this because I'm unhappy. In fact, it makes my marriage happier until they got found out. And then there was all of this unbelievable trauma that would result from that discovery. So that was part of my research in getting people to, to become aware of their behavior online. And then the second part of my research was looking at marriage and saying, how relevant is marriage today? Is it still something that people want? And what kind of marriages do people want today? So that became, you know, a huge focus for me. And people really began to talk a lot about that. Now, at the same time, while this was happening, because the world of technology opened up so much opportunity for people to meet up, join communities, and explore their sexuality, their gender. There was, there was suddenly a whole opening of different kinds of availability of relationships. So polyamorous was something that was became very popular, uh, is very popular. Uh, people began to feel more free to talk about being non-binary, People began to feel more free to explore their gender and their gender identity. So, so it all kind of came together in this, this, this rush where, where suddenly there was this whole focus on sexuality in a very different way and on relationships and it expanded for people. So I became um, very involved at the polyamorous um, academic group where we meet every two years in Europe and look at current research around polyamory and um, clinical interventions around how to help people to manage and navigate polyamorous um, relationships, consensual non-monogamy or non-consensual non-monogamy. And um, that still remains you know, obviously an interest for me because so many people struggle, struggle to be married. And my whole belief around that is that um, one needs to be examining relationships rather than cheating, because cheating is just so very, very painful and so destructive and really leaves people traumatized. And, and I'll come into the trauma part of that now. Okay, let's take another short ad break and we come back, we can speak about the trauma. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to This Care Medical Monday, 101.9 High FM. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we speak to Dr. Eve, clinical sexologist. And uh, she's taken us on the journey of her life and now through uh, uh, infidelity, uh, cyber infidelity, forgot the word for a sec. And now we're going to speak about the trauma associated with uh, cyber infidelity. 
coffee. Yeah, so infidelity's been around since since Adam and Eve, right? Uh, so it's nothing new. Uh, so as a clinician, I've always worked with infidelity in my therapy room. And yet when cyber infidelity happened, uh, I found that the, 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 the interventions that I was using for regular infidelity were not useful. So they needed to be something different and something unique. And so I, I needed to be searching for new interventions that would work. And that's where my, um, my work and my curiosity then took me into the work of trauma. And I questioned, would that be useful? Would there be interventions there that would be useful for me to help couples to manage this particular trauma? And so as I went into that, I developed a an intervention, specific technique specifically, um, and there haven't been research. It's just really based on my own clinical experience. And I actually have taught that throughout the world. I've done a lot of training of other therapists in how to manage cyber infidelity. It's quite a unique trauma. And found that I became quite um, captivated with the with the techniques of trauma and um, began doing some online training and attending international conferences by some of the trauma experts in the world. And um, COVID then offered me this uh, incredible opportunity to really explore that because I uh, could do it online instead of going to Boston and having that expense and leaving my practice. And so I um, registered uh, for a certificate program, which I'm, as I say, I'll be done in February, a trauma certificate program through the Trauma Research Foundation, which is um, founded by, run by Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who is the leading um, psychiatrist and global researcher in early childhood trauma as well as in PTSD. So my work has taken a very different turn where the people that I see now um, are all treated by me or managed by me through a trauma-informed lens. So I guess the uh, presentations are somewhat different and even if they're the same, the work that I do with people is, is really different because... It's um, it's quite horrific, Dean, when when one examines and understands, and especially in our country, the level of trauma. So, you know, I, I think I'm going to take it from a, a bigger point of view as well. Um, we have something which is called collective trauma, which um, Jewish people are unfortunately very familiar with. You know, from pogroms to the Holocaust, those things would be called collective traumas. We there is such a huge trauma, like a genocide, that affects the entire nation or entire group of people. Um, currently, the whole world is caught up in a global collective trauma, namely COVID, where we all feel the symptoms of, um, of trauma on an ongoing level every single day in a different way. So we have that, the collective trauma of, of, of these big global disasters that happen to us. And then we have um, childhood traumas, which are known as developmental trauma disorder. And if we think about the fact that uh, in this country, one in three girls, one in five boys are sexually abused before the age of 18, when we consider how many women are raped in our country every few minutes, how many men are also sexually violated, we have enormous, enormous amount of traumatized people in this country. If we think about the racial injustice that happens, the gender-based violence that happens, 
we're a very traumatized nation. And so my, my work is working with people who have um, suffered from childhood developmental trauma and people who suffer from um, adult events like rape or illness, acute illness or loss of a limb, you know, a real extreme accident that's happened which would bring about PTSD. Uh, but a lot of sexual violence, sexual violence and childhood violence and childhood neglect and abandonment. And how why does, the, how does yeah. the, sorry, carry, carry on. I just, when you're done, I just wanted to ask, how does the collective trauma affect the individual and an individual relationship? When we think about what the symptoms are of trauma and what many of us have felt this time during COVID, it, um, it puts us into a, dysregulated state of fight or flight or freeze and each one of us has responded differently to this event like COVID based on our own ways of adjusting to our lives um, which might have been any kind of attachment difficulty or trauma that we had as a child or even if we've had very secure childhoods and never experienced trauma as such we still respond with levels of anxiety that cause us to be dysregulated in our bodies, in our minds. So things like anxiety, depression, and physical illnesses like um, having really unsettled guts, um, having uh, pain, chronic pain situations. So the body will be manifesting all kinds of difficulty when you're suffering with a collective trauma and the, and the mind. So you've got a mental and a physical inflammation in a way which affects the whole body. And that makes us not want to be intimate because we're in a survival mode. Your brain goes into survival mode and when you're in survival mode, it doesn't really lend itself to being that intimate with somebody. So that led to, it does lead to a lot of difficulty with intimacy and sexuality when, for example, in COVID, an example of that, and the research is just becoming evident now, is how all over the world there was a drop in sexual frequency, a drop in sexual interest, a drop in sexual satisfaction, a drop in masturbation, a drop in interest in dating, because we're in survival mode, and it's not a healthy place to be for an extended period of time like we have right now. And we're in it because we don't really know when it will end. So as a global body, you know, we're, we're not in a place of, of really heightened sexual joy. So on, regarding your clinical practice on a day-to-day basis, what kind of traumas are you seeing? Um, and maybe you can just uh, tell us a bit about um, how you go through the traumas and what uh, techniques you use to counsel people and to help them through their trauma. So... Um, the presenting issues may be what people would present to me usually, which would be, I don't have an interest in being sexual. Or it could be that I um, I really can't bear being touched. Or we've got this huge desire discrepancy where he or she wants more sexual activity than what I do. Or we really are having an enormous amount of conflict in the relationship right now. So those would be almost everyday stuff and then there are the other presentations of I was gang raped by eight people or I was sexually molested by my grandfather 
or I was sexually harassed at work, or I was beaten and left for death after I was raped, um, or else I find that I really struggle to stay in a relationship, or I am finding that I engage in risky sexual behavior, I find that I can't stop watching porn, or I find that I really can't make a commitment to somebody, um, or I find that I am I'm using alcohol excessively, or MDMA, or mushrooms, or edibles. So that would lead me to understand that after I do a thorough assessment, I would probably find that there would be underlying that there would be some kind of trauma probably, because all of those are symptoms of um, trauma. Any addiction, anger, um, aggressive behavior, abusive behavior, violent behavior towards each other. So I am able to identify the symptoms of early childhood trauma or people who have had violent sexual crimes against them or just violent crimes of robbery or having been mugged. And they're completely um, dysregulated and, as I say, are not able to really form attachments or maintain attachments in their relationships and find it really difficult to sustain interest in being sexual or want to have, as I say, risky sexual behavior. Um, so, how, so do, how do you actually work with them through this? Um, do you do counseling sessions and what do you do in each of those sessions? Well, to bring them back to some uh, lifestyle of normality to help them find themselves again. The goal, the goal of trauma, the goal of trauma treatment is to help somebody to find joy and pleasure in their lives again, joy, pleasure, and purpose. So it's about engaging in a completely different way of living, which is a, a mindfulness practice. So mindfulness practice is the purpose of it is to be able to regulate your your own brainstem, your nervous system. So there's these beautiful interventions that are have got robust research behind them. It's no longer psychotherapy or talk therapy. That's not what trauma treatment is about anymore at all. So one of the, the best interventions that I recommend and that I bring into my practice is that of yoga because all the work is, is around neuroscience and how to be able to calm down the brain and the nervous system. So it's working with the brain and the nervous systems of individuals and of couples together. So it's working with a lot of um, techniques of compassion work, what's called mindfulness compassion work as well, and lots of self-care. I have in my, I work mostly on Zoom, and in my therapy room, it kind of resembles like a yoga studio right now, We we do lots of different kinds of interventions, of yoga poses, working with the body. I work with the body, doing what's called sensory motor psychotherapy, and doing uh, mindfulness, and um, just a whole variety of different interventions that are body-based because we want to move the trauma from the body and set it free to get it unstuck in people's lives. So they're beautiful interventions that um, people really, really respond to very beautifully. And uh, relating to COVID, um, there's been a lot of, uh, besides the collective trauma of the unknown and people having... um, Having lost jobs and uncertainty and they don't know um, what's going on in the future, 
Yeah. There's also been a, lo- a lot of people spending uh, a lot of time at home, working from home and not leaving home mm. and kind of having to see their relationship with new stresses and in a new light. And uh, I'm sure like people often give a description of uh, people in a relationship that being like uh, ships passing at night, that they work the whole day, they come home, they eat dinner together, they go to bed and uh, they very rarely see each other and often... Uh, Often when they go on holiday together, they realize that uh, maybe there's something wrong with the relationship or something missing or something that was there and it wasn't there. How have you seen now this uh, with, with COVID? Um, what has it done to people's intimacy and people's relationships? It's um, certainly brought in an awareness that has long been avoided. So the trauma of covid part of the trauma of COVID or lockdown was that it took away from all of us our usual adaptive mechanisms. All of us have got ways of adapting to everyday stress. Every single one of us have got it and for most of us it's not most of us it's not pathological, doesn't cause us harm, and we very functional. We get on with it, we can be very successful and we have found ways, we all find ways to be able to manage the difficulties of everyday life. And some of those adaptive mechanisms will include excessive work, long hours at work, commuting, traveling, coming home and still working. It may include excessive sport, exercise, long hours in the gym, socializing, going out with friends, golf days, um, lots of weekends away with girlfriends, lots of alcohol, drugs, gambling. In other words, and food, yeah, food. We have found ways, all of us, to survive through these adaptive mechanisms. But when we got locked down, those were taken away from, from us. And we were left with just ourselves. So for my clients who are, um, who, who do have addictions, it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult time for them because they, um, they were, they were without their usual methods of escape and adaption. And it was very difficult. There was a huge amount of suicidality and aggression and high levels of abuse. Um, gender-based violence increased by 30% during COVID. The aggression, the fear, the anxiety, there was no way to quell that. There was no way to manage that. And so you locked in with this person. And what couples then began to find out for themselves is that there were parts of themselves that they really didn't know and they had to get to know. They were forced to get to know and to see parts that they knew but could avoid by just not hanging around each other too often. So, for example, um, there were couples who he would complain, she just wants me around all the time. She doesn't ever leave me alone. She wants me in the kitchen with her when she's cooking. She wants me to be around her when she's online or when to help her with the children or she wants me to go shopping with her. She just wants me around all the time. And she would then say, well, she just never wants to be with me. He just wants to be alone, locks himself in, in another room. And we've just completely disconnected. And I really thought we had a good relationship and we would, I can't understand what's going on here. So you know, that was, that was quite a typical situation. And it became known, these two people became aware of their different, what we call attachment styles, the way that, that we attach to people, the way that we prefer intimacy. 
and they found that the one person was just way more anxious and needed much more attention, which when he was away at work, he didn't, he didn't get to feel it. He may have got 45 messages during the day from her, but he was able to manage it. But being in the house with her, it was overwhelming. And she didn't realize how avoidant he was and how he really can't tolerate too much intimacy. And he needs to have much more space on his own and much more time to work. And so they had to negotiate those things without pathologizing, without judging. Um, how do we deal with these new and interesting parts of ourselves so that we can feel, which is the purpose of, of all relationships, that we can feel safe and secure with each other? So a lot of the work is, is getting couples to feel safe and secure, people to get safe and secure with themselves and then safe and secure with each other. And so it becomes different kinds of conversations. But it's not even conversations. I do like really fun things with couples. I mean, we really do fun things together. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the things that couples don't do a lot of, and I don't know about you, I'm not going to ask you about you, Dean, but a lot of couples don't play. They don't have enough fun, Right. They just don't have enough fun together. Sure. So they have a lot of responsibilities and they have children and work and stress and finances and they don't play. So they'll do date nights, but those don't usually end up to be playful. They end up to be high stress or expectation of sex afterwards or talk about the children or talk about finances. Not enough talking about dreaming and planning and you know, imagining things that they can do together, planning activities dreaming together, not enough of that stuff. And mostly there isn't enough playfulness. So I get couples to play. And that's, you know, incredibly interesting how it changes the entire dynamic of the relationship. And uh, I get them to do some kind of yoga poses together and compassion exercises together. And it just totally changes the the nervous system, and it, it, it works quite beautifully. So do you want to give us some other examples, maybe? I mean, a lot of couples, I think, try to go on, uh, on date nights, and they try uh-huh. and uh, experience some kind of alone time away from the kids. And yeah. uh, you're right, it ends up being uh, talking about the kids, but not yeah. enough about themselves. Why don't you give us some ideas about um, yeah. what do you think should be um, ideal play, play activities? So, as I said just now, doing, managing or working with, with trauma, working with people's intimacy, it requires a, a real change in lifestyle. It requires what's called a mindfulness practice. So it is living in mindful moments and making a decision as a couple that we really are going to, we're going to first and foremost do self-care. So let me give you an example, which I give my couples to, to think about. Say you are at the playground and your, your kid is playing on one of the playground apparatus and you're sitting on a bench close by and the kid, you hear your kid screaming because your kid has fallen off an apparatus. And I'll say to, well, let me ask you, Dean, I mean, you've got children, what would what would you do? What would you do if you heard your child screaming? You run straight. You run straight for them, I guess. And what would you do when you greeted that child? When you got to your child, pick them up, give them a hug, comfort them, tell them it's okay. Mm-hmm. And how would you be, be there for them? How would you be feeling when you heard well, them? You, you're trying to show that uh, 
you were strong and brave, but really you've been shaken. Exactly right. You're shaken. And one thing that we do know is that children feel and respond to the nervous system of a parent completely, to the posture, the gestures, the facial expression, and the tone of voice. So instead of jumping up and going to get the child, the first thing you have to do is take a few breaths and regulate your own self. And then you walk with great big strides to your child. And you pick up your child when you're in a much more still, calm place. And immediately the nervous system of your child is going to respond, what's called co-regulate with your nervous system. And you'll have a child who settles down in half a heartbeat. Because if you go and they feel your, your heart pounding and they can hear it in your tone and they see it on your face, they're going to scream longer and feel way more unsafe and insecure, even if you say in words of comfort to them. So the task of a parent, first and foremost, is self-care. Self-care. So that means that we as parents have got to have a lifestyle which starts off in the morning with yoga or Pilates on a mat, being in nature, taking a walk, spending time together as a couple with a ritual of doing something together where there aren't any children, where you get up half hour early to do something together, where you do something for yourself and you do something together, some kind of ritual. So you are calm and connected and united and greet your children in such a way. And then you have beautiful structures, routines and rhythms that you have as a family. Because I'm, you know, I'm a family therapist, so I do a lot of work with, with, with families in helping um, parents to to manage their children. Okay, and we're going to take another, sorry, before we carry on, we're going to take another short ad break. And I'd love to carry on talking about um, family and parents and the relationship between uh, the parent and the, between themselves and the children. We'll be back right after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. Eve. And we're busy speaking about the family and having healthy parents and healthy parent relationships so that you can uh, provide, I guess, a healthy uh, emotional environment for for your children and you were just giving us some ideas of uh, how the parents or the couple uh, maintain their relationship so that they can be there for their children yeah before you even maintain your relationship you've got to maintain yourself you have to have it that is your primary responsibility as a parent is to do self-care whatever that may mean for you and <laughs> to be able to to practice regulation, whether, as I say, it's Pilates or whether it is yoga, that you're on a mat or, or Qigong or Tai Chi or something that is going to get you into your body and calm your nervous system down so that you are ready to engage in a calm way with your children. That is your work as a parent. And then the work as a couple is to be able to find ways to be playful and to have fun and to keep connected in that intimate way so that your children see a couple, see parents, who are prioritizing themselves first and foremost in their relationship, that they get to see a couple, they get modeling of a couple of two parents who are able to regulate themselves, engage with each other, show affection, show respect, show kindness, compassion towards each other. And in that way, that is the best, best, best way to raise your children. 
I don't know if you saw that there was a meme going around and it spoke about how mothers need, uh, I wish I could remember the clever, the clever writing, but about how mothers need the time in the car before they go into the house. Often I'll come home and my wife will have been sitting in the car alone by herself, just some quiet time, yeah. 10 minutes for herself before she goes inside. And, um, this this was like a joke about it, but I mean, I've seen it firsthand and we've spoken about it with friends, how yeah. important it is that you just need to kind of take some time out and have a breather. And sometimes the only place you can get that is in your car when you arrive home before your kids realize that you're in the car and you've arrived home yet. Excellent idea. It's absolutely, there's nothing to joke about it. That is absolutely a responsibility of a parent to do that. There's no doubt about that. So I uh, recommend that the, that self-care is the most important thing that has to that has to happen for every parent if you want to raise how do, children. How do you uh, make sure that problems that a parent is having by themselves or a partner in a relationship is having with themselves don't rub off onto the partner or affect their relationship or affect your your children issues that you're having with yourself or with your partner don't affect your children. The real opposite of what um, what I espouse. Um, you never want to push down your problems. You know that's what intimacy is about. Intimacy is about feeling safe and secure enough in visible your relationship to be able to be vulnerable enough to to share your problems or your issues or your concerns with the partner. So that's what partnerships about is to be able to have the support and to create safe and secure relationships. So it's never about hiding parts of yourself. It's about how do I manage the parts of myself with which I'm struggling, with which are difficult for me. That's what relationships should be about, showing the respect, kindness, and compassion for the parts that your partner is struggling with. Uh, kids, kids sense it in a heartbeat. They are repeating. Kids look at your face, your gestures, your expression, before they hear your words. They hear your tone, but they don't hear your words. The words are really not important. It's more around everything else, and they are watching your interaction. So not being authentic is is really an unhealthy thing to do. You don't want to be suppressing those parts of you. That so, are what, so, so, what, so if a couple is going through a hard time, the kids obviously will, will notice it. Mm-hmm. How, do you com- how do you comfort your children? How do you explain to them that you're going through a hard time? Um, because they can see it and explain to them that it's not going to affect uh, your relationship with them. And sometimes this does happen to parents. Do you want to give us a bit of advice about that? Well, I think it depends on, you know, what the hard time is. Uh, I think it depends very much. If, for example, somebody's had an affair, I mean, the children really do not need to know about that. If there are financial difficulties, the children do not need to know about that. You know, they, they really need to be, we are there to protect children. Um, if there is an illness, kids need to know about that. And I'm going to keep coming back to this. It all depends on how you present that to your child. If you're going to present that to your child in a way that lets them see that you are really anxious about it or you're really depressed about it, they're going to respond very negatively. But if you let them know in a rational way, uh, you know, we got this. This is something difficult for us. We're on top of it. They're going to feel safe and secure. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe I'm asking you questions, <laughs> just coming as a parent and difficult things that, uh, as a young parent, and that that we go through 
at home because, I mean, when you don't know, uh, especially going back again to COVID and the uncertainty, and uh, when you're in lockdown and the kids can maybe see the change or the anxiety on, on the parents and you want to make them feel secure, it's often difficult to put on a brave face uh, to them um, with finding the words to comfort them and tell them that everything's going to be okay and really believe it. You can't say that because that's not being authentic. It's saying um, you probably feel that um, everything's not okay. What is okay is our home and look around and we have a house and we're safe and we have food and we have each other and you bring in the things that they do have rather than talk about what you don't know. Amazing. Yeah, you, you, what's called you orientate them to the present and you keep them in the mindful moments. And every day, it's the responsibility of us parents to be able to provide those mindful moments and keep our children grounded. So, you know, if you were in my therapy room, if your kid was there, oh, I don't work with kids, I work with parents, I would, you know, teach you grounding techniques that you would then be able to teach your children those same grounding techniques. Because that's what's needed. Okay, we're going to take another short ad break, and uh, when we get back, we want to talk a bit about the December holidays and how the different um, patterns of people going away or staying at home or traumas we might face will affect uh, the family. We'll be back after this. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. Eve. And we've really been on a real journey over the past hour, starting from the beginning of their career and talking about sexuality and in South Africa and people opening up and trauma. And now we are talking about uh, family and family trauma and talking to kids about um, things going on in the world at home and a lovely concept that I hadn't heard of before. We talked about grounding, about talk, not in the wrong context. When children hear grounding, maybe they'll hear that, think that uh, they're being grounded, but grounding them in, in, <laughs> what, in, what, in, in what you know. And now that schools have broken up and mm-hmm. uh, we're all kind of back to homes again, I think sometimes the structure of school was uh, therapeutic for kids getting back to normal. Okay. And now we've kind of got the unknown of the pandemic again with uh, all kids being at home. Do you want to maybe give us some tips or advice on... Um, what to do in these holidays to keep uh, sane and to keep our families happy and healthy. Yeah, that, you've, used the, you've used the very important word, Dean, and that is structure. It's absolutely, absolutely imperative to maintain structure for your children. That's what creates safety for them. So they must have a regular structure of waking up at the same time, of knowing what they're going to do next, of knowing what happens after that, of knowing what happens after that. That is what keeps them safe. And secure. Obviously, there's going to be flexibility with that, but they must know that there's a basic structure. And in fact, very importantly as well, is that they must have very good sleep hygiene. I'm sure you're familiar with that too. That there has to be ritual around their sleep time. Their bedtime must be the same, and that there are certain um, there are certain rituals that happen at bedtime. There's certain rituals that happen over meal times. That the most important thing is to keep them with certainty in a world that's so uncertain that they can hang on to those things which are called anchors and they know what to expect from moment to moment. So that's important. I don't know if it's uh, in 
in the scope of your practice. But uh, now that holidays are coming, there's going to be increased screen time for children and for parents. How do you feel about uh, screen time in the home? Yeah, I mean, that's like another whole hour on its own. Sure, well, I'm happy to have you again. But if you only <laughs> give us two, two minutes on how, how do we manage screen time, it's very, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing to do in the home in the holidays or you don't yeah. have activity today or it's a rainy day and it's a very yeah. easy thing just to turn on the TV, to mm. put on Netflix for yourself or for the children and kind of just uh, vegetate. Right. So there, uh, you know, you pointed out to something important as well is that parents have to be very aware of their own screen time because once again, the most important thing is to remember you're the model for your child. So children complain when they find that their parents are totally distracted and are not present with them. What do kids most want? Kids most want to feel attended to, seen, and that the parent is interested in them and find them interesting. So if you're going to be on your phone all the time, dare you, dare you to say to your child you can't be on yours. You really have to set the example for your own self as well. So screen time... Certainly during COVID, it's been a necessity. The rules around it have changed or the thinking around it because kids have had to be on it for schooling. So, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that you just need to be able to have times around, depending on the age of the child, what they're watching. And obviously because I'm a sexuality educator, you have to educate your children about sexuality because you have to do porn education with those children. They're going to come across it and have you done any education to put it within the context of sexuality education. That's really, really important thing to be able to discuss with your kids and to be able to discuss everything. If you're doing screen time with your kids, you want to be there next to them, watching a Netflix movie, but sharing the thoughts, the experience, because that's how you pass on knowledge and values, most importantly values to your children when you're watching something together. Uh, the other thing that I, I really would recommend if families do is board games. Because what do kids want? Kids want to feel a sense of agency, that they have power, that they have authority in their own little worlds, so even in a board game, and that they actually need and want a challenge as well. So find challenging games. Set up competitions in the family around things. Make it fun and playful. So what's been you know most interesting for me in my in my trauma course where everything's been really interesting in my certification is the importance of play. You you cannot raise a kid without play. So my last word on this Dean is everybody must get a ball, a beach ball. And you've got to play with the beach ball. And you know I can't go into it now, but it's really important that families throw a beach ball around throw balls around to each other. And they're fabulous games that one can devise which meet the criteria of fun and challenge, connection, engagement, and feeling seen by parents and other people. Dr. Eve, I guess we've probably brought up another 10 topics that we could spend another hour on, and I look forward to having you back on the show to speak about them. And I thank you so much for giving up this uh, time to talk to us. I've certainly enjoyed this uh, interview tremendously. If people... Uh, want to hear more from you I imagine you've got podcasts or videos or some education or they want to get hold of you or they want to see you or consult with you what's the best way um, to get in touch with you or see your work so I am obviously on all social media um, and that you'll see from my Instagram posts I'm mostly on Instagram and on Facebook and on 
on Twitter as well somewhat, but mostly I'm loving Instagram because I live a very mindfulness lifestyle, so I spend a lot of time in nature, which is important that people get exposed to nature because our brains love that. So you'll find a lot of my Instagram, uh, you'll see me on my Instagram account. I also have an online sex store, which I sell sex toys for people who are interested in sexual pleasure and who have um, sexual health issues. There is a store, and right now in December, I'm really, really having specials every single day because I feel it's a right of people to be able to have access to sexual products, sexual health products, and to sex toys and to sexual pleasure. So every day there are special offers on and free gifts every single day. So please take advantage of that. So I'm always educating people about sex toys as well. Uh, and then get onto my website, drev.ca.za, and you'll be able to read and book a session and um there are lots of blogs and there's lots of podcasts that happen. Um, so, yeah, you'll be able to find all the information there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners mm-hmm. for joining us. I'm sure you've really enjoyed that as well.